thank the Lord for our time here together. Um, I have a question for you. Have you ever grabbed a power tool and attempted to use it, realizing that it was not plugged in? Have you ever done this? You grab a, a circular saw and you need to cut some wood. Circular saw, you know, the circle blade, and you know? And you need to cut some wood and it's not plugged in. No matter what you do with that saw, it's not going to be cutting that wood if it's not plugged in. How many of you have uh, encountered this situation? Um, what's the first question that the tech support guy is going to ask you? When you call and say, my computer won't turn on. Is it plugged in, right? And then you look and you say, oh, what do you do at that point? Do you just kind of hang up and <laughs> just say, my bad. Thanks so much for that counsel, sir. So much of our lives are almost completely dependent on electricity. And if there's no power source, a whole lot of things are not going to get done. It's the same in the life of a Christian. If you are not abiding in Christ, there is no power or grace to get anything done spiritually. So if you brought your Bible this morning, turn to John chapter 15. We are in John chapter 15. We're going to look at the first 17 verses. We are in week four of a four-part series on the I Am statements in the Gospel of John. These are statements that Jesus makes about himself that tells us a lot about who he is and why he came here. It gives us good practical handles on what we are to understand about Jesus, why he came here, and who he is. So uh, in this one, this morning, uh, we are looking at the last of the seven statements. Uh, we looked at, uh, I am the door of the sheep. We looked at, I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life, and I am the light of the world. And in this text, Jesus says, I am the true vine. So the setting here is the upper room, where Jesus ate the Passover meal with his disciples on the, the night before he was arrested. The whole scene goes from chapter 13 all the way through chapter 17 and is called the Farewell Discourse. And in chapter 13, you might remember that Jesus gathers with his 12 disciples, and it was during this meal where the traitor Judas Iscariot leaves the meal and goes and betrays Jesus and alerts the authorities about where they could find Jesus so they could arrest him. And in chapter 14, Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to be leaving them, and it causes them great distress. Our closest companion, our Messiah, our leader, is going to be leaving us. And then Jesus promises to send the Holy Spirit to them, who is going to be with them and dwell in them forever. So now in chapter 15, Jesus paints this vivid picture of a vine and its branches. He uses an allegory here, or what we might call an extended metaphor. He tells us about our mission in Christ and how we are to be fruitful and joyful to the glory of God in our Christian lives. So let's read it, John chapter 15, verses 1 to 17. Jesus says this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. 
Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. So here's the big idea in this text. Abiding in Christ and bearing much spiritual fruit results in glory to God, answered prayer, and true joy. So let's walk through this extended metaphor. There's four elements of this picture that we need to draw our attention to. And the first element is the characters, the characters in this metaphor. The first character we see is the true vine. Jesus says in verse 1, I am the true vine. The imagery of vines and vineyards would have been a, a very common sort of site in, uh, middle, in the Middle East. There were vineyards all over the place. And so this is actually a common picture we see in the scriptures. This would have provided a very helpful, very vivid image for Jesus' spiritual teaching so that we can take spiritual truth and hook it on in our minds and, and remember it. And most often when the vine is mentioned in the Old Testament, it's talking about Israel. And Israel is pictured as the vine that God planted and nurtured. And we see this, for example, in Psalm 80, look in, in verses 8 and 9. He says, you brought a vine out of Egypt. This is talking about the Exodus. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. So Israel here is the vine. And usually when we read about the vine in the Old Testament, about talking about Israel, the scripture says that the vine was actually a very big disappointment to God. God did everything that was necessary for the vine to flourish. He planted the vine. He cultivated it. He did everything that was necessary for the vine to flourish. He expected it to produce plump, healthy, sweet fruit. The Jews were to be the channel to 
uh, through which the covenant blessings were to extend to the world. But instead of producing good fruit, the vine produced wild, sour, or rotten fruit. And their faithlessness and their apostasy earned God's discipline or his judgment. And we see this over and over in the Old Testament. We see it in Isaiah chapter 5, Jeremiah chapter 2, Ezekiel 15, Hosea 10, and so on. But here, Jesus changes the picture somewhat. He says, I am the true vine. I am the real or genuine or perfect vine. He's the one who provides the life-giving energy and sustenance to the branches. He's the source and focus of God's plan of salvation. He's the source of grace and spiritual life and spiritual vitality and spiritual growth. He is the source. He's the vine. He's the, the conduit, the pipeline through which all of the grace of God flows to all who abide in him. We see the vine. The second character in this extended metaphor is the vine dresser. Jesus says in verse 1 that God, the Father, is the vine dresser. So what does the vine dresser do? I see a hand. That's great. He was going to shout out. The vine dresser is the farmer. He's the gardener. And in this case, he is also the one who owns the land. He's the one who clears the stones and prepares the soil and plants the vine and waters the vine and tends to the branches and reaps the fruit and so on. He's the one who does all the preparations and the labor to be sure that the living branches are healthy and producing. The Father is fully aware of every person's spiritual condition. He knows their level of spiritual fruitfulness. And he is the one who does everything that is necessary to see to their growth and their fruitfulness. The third character we see is the unfruitful branch. In verse 2, Jesus says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. The unfruitful branch is a dry, lifeless branch in this picture. It's dead wood. It can't produce any fruit because it is not alive. It's not a living branch. So the vine dresser cuts off or takes away this branch. Now, this is a, a notoriously challenging verse for readers and teachers of the Bible, and we need to be careful to understand what Jesus is saying here so that we, otherwise, we can easily go astray. Jesus says, every branch in me, and that's confusing. In me, he says. This part can trip us up. Is he talking about people who are or were truly saved but don't bear spiritual fruit? Does this mean that this was a formally abiding and fruit-bearing branch that died and is now being cut off? Does this verse teach that a Christian can lose their salvation? The short answer is no. It doesn't teach that. Once God gets a hold of your heart and saves your soul, he will never let go. Never let go. He will hold on to you forever. 
We saw that in John chapter 6. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. We talked about the security that we have in Christ. It doesn't mean that the person was in him, like the Apostle Paul would say that a true Christian is in Christ. Paul uses that, that phrase a lot in his epistles. He doesn't say Christian a lot. He says those who are in Christ. So, um, how do we know that? How do we know? Because of verse 6. Verse 6 tells us what happens to the branches that the vine dresser takes away. They are thrown away, he says, and gathered together and burned. This is a sobering picture of judgment. And there is no hint in the New Testament that any Christian will ever be judged like this in fire. Rather, this is a picture of a Judas kind of branch. This is someone who's in him in the sense that he is closely associated with Jesus or in close proximity with him and mingles with the others who follow Christ and follows along with the group and enjoys the benefits of fellowship but isn't truly born again. This was true of Judas. He did what the others were doing. He was in close association with Jesus. Outwardly, he was indistinguishable from the other disciples. He would have been there when they were distributing food and feeding the 5,000. He was the one who would carry the money bag when they traveled around. He spent lots of time in Jesus' presence and with the other disciples, but he was never converted. These are people who are religious but lost. They may go to church every Sunday, maybe for many years, maybe decades, and never truly come to faith in the Savior. They never commit to him and his lordship. They enjoy the love and the fellowship they experience in the church. They're near Christ, but not in Christ. They're in church, but not in Christ. And that's a scary and dangerous place to stay. Being in the church, but not in Christ, can create a totally false sense of security. You get to the end of your days and you face Jesus and you'll say, I never knew you. The good news is that God made a way to be reconciled to him by faith in his son Jesus. And he is reaching out to you this morning if that's where you find yourself. The fourth character we see in this extended metaphor is the fruit-bearing branch. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, he says. These are all genuine, born-again Christians. These are those who have been saved through faith in Christ, who are indwelt by the Spirit, and are bearing fruit to varying degrees. Every Christian abides in Christ and bears fruit to some degree. And according to our text, this is an evidence of saving faith. Jesus says in verse 8 that real spirit-led, spirit-empowered fruit-bearing is proof that you are his disciple. 
And Jesus points to another function of the vine dresser here. He said the vine dresser prunes the living branches so that they'll be even more fruitful. Now, if you have a vine, maybe you're growing vines on purpose. Some of us have vines in our yard and we're not growing them on purpose. Um, Or you have some kind of tree and you're nurturing these trees, maybe fruit trees. You understand the importance of pruning, pruning the branches. It's an important function for the health and the fruitfulness of the plants. The whole purpose of of pruning or cutting back the branches is so that the, the vine will grow more fruit, better fruit. According to Scripture, God saves your soul for a variety of purposes. There's a a variety of purposes He saves you. Number one, He saves you because He loves you, clearly, right? God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. But well beyond that, He saves you that you would glorify Him with your life. He saves you to exalt the glory of His grace. We see that in Ephesians chapter 1. And according to our text for today in verse 16, he saves you that you would bear spiritual fruit. There's a purpose for your salvation. Multiple purposes. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you. Why? For what purpose? that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, your fruit should remain. And the Father knows everything about you, he knows everything about me. And he knows exactly how spiritually fruitful we are. And he knows the kinds of things in our lives that are hindering our spiritual growth and hindering our fruitfulness. God is laser-focused on your growth that you would grow to be more like his son. His main goal for you, this side of heaven, is that you would be more like his son. So he carefully and he skillfully prunes us for our good and for his glory. He cuts back the things in our lives that are hindering our growth and hindering greater fruitfulness. He cuts away things that are becoming idols or pulling us away from abiding in Christ. And that pruning might come from discipline from God or from trials or suffering. It might come from his sovereignly working through providence. And God uses his word as a, a sharp pruning knife as to cut away ungodly attitudes and stubborn idolatries and impure motives and all kinds of things. And it may feel a little bit harsh, especially when he takes away something that we we love. But we need to always remember this. Whatever God does, he does according to his love, according to his perfect wisdom, and according to his eternal purposes. It's for our good, because God is good. And we need to remember this. This is really important. If we align our will with God's will, when we are also laser-focused on growing to be more like Christ and growing in greater fruitfulness and honoring and glorifying God, when that's our purpose, 
we can thank God from our hearts and worship him for the pruning that he does in our lives, even when it's painful. Because God is preparing us for greater fruit. And in this, we can rejoice and we can worship, worship him. Because when we are closer to Christ and our lives are bringing him greater glory, we have greater joy and peace in our lives. So those are the four characters in this metaphor. Then we see the second element of this metaphor, number two, the command. If you've been a Christian for a while and you've been around the church, have you noticed that there are some Christians who seem to be especially fruitful. They're growing in godliness. They seem to be joyful regularly. They're engaged in fruitful ministry. They're regularly sharing Christ with others and so on. Probably a few people popped into your head, even as I was sharing that. What's the difference? What makes these Christians so especially fruitful? The difference is abiding, consistently abiding in Christ. Now, we may look at our lives and we'll say, yeah, there was periods and times in my life when I was more fruitful and less fruitful, and I'm looking at my life now and I'm thinking, not so much fruit. And it could be that God has you in a season right now where he's doing deep work in your soul. He's preparing you. He's, he's cultivating the soil. He's pruning, and he's, he's now preparing you for greater fruitfulness down the road. We don't know what God is up to all the time. But we do know this. Jesus says in verse 4, Abide in me, and you will be fruitful. Eleven times in this passage, he talks about abiding. So it's important for us to have a good idea of what Jesus means when he says, Abide in me. This is not a command of God that's a huge burden for us. Like, if God said, Here, I want you to take a ball-peen hammer, and I want you to knock yourself on the head twelve times, Every morning, knock yourself on the head with a hammer 12 times. This is not a burdensome command. This is the center of the Christian life. This is the crux of the matter as a Christian. And there's huge, great fullness of joy in this command. To abide means to remain. It means to stay or continue or reside or dwell in Christ. Remain, stay, continue, reside, dwell in Christ. It means to be in vital union with him. It means to be in communion with Christ on a daily basis. To have constant, close fellowship with him. To walk arm in arm with your Savior every day. It's being daily in the scriptures, taking time to pray throughout your day. It means to worship him, to recognize his presence with you always. It's being with him, submitting to him, loving him, staying plugged in. And this being your lifestyle. And the first thing we need to understand is that abiding in Jesus begins at conversion. Apart from conversion, there's no abiding. Before God saves us, we can't abide, we can't remain where we've never been. Before our salvation, we are dirtied in our soul because of our sin, because of our disobedience, our moral impurity, our rebellion, and so on. 
And, and the Bible sometimes describes salvation as spiritual cleansing or washing. Titus 3, 5, and 6, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration. It's a washing away of sin as Jesus saves our soul. He forgives us completely. It's kind of the, the symbolism we see as part of the symbolism of baptism in the waters of baptism. Baptism doesn't save us, but it's a symbol of the washing. It's a once-for-all, complete washing away of sins and spiritual darkness. And he does this washing when we hear the message of the gospel. And then we turn to him in faith. When we trust in him, when we trust in his work on the cross that he did for us to, to take away our sin, to purchase our salvation. He paid the penalty for our sins and we trust in him once and for all. And he saves our soul. This is... This is a one-time event, and then we're spiritually clean. So Jesus says to his disciples in verse 3, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you, because of the, the message of the gospel, because of all the message of the kingdom, and their trust and their belief. And now Jesus says, Abide in me. When you abide in Christ, you are plugged in to the power source. And you're receiving from the only source, the only true vine, infusions of grace and spiritual enabling to obey the Lord and produce spiritual fruit. And Jesus makes a clear connection between abiding in him and obeying his word. There's a vital connection between the two. In verse 7, he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And then he expands the idea of abiding in him by talking about abiding in his love. And then he connects that with obeying his word. He says in verses 9 to 10, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. And how do you do that? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And notice he didn't say, If you know my commandments, you will abide in my love. You must know them and keep them. Walk in them. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. And we see the same thing in chapter 14, verse 15. But he actually reverses the order. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So there's this vital connection. The point is, loving Jesus, abiding in Jesus, and keeping his commandments are inseparable. There's an intimacy, there's a closeness to Christ when we obey his word, when we live in holiness. If you're walking in obedience to Christ, you'll naturally be closer to Jesus, who himself is perfect holiness. I mean, you think about it. Will you sense greater closeness to Christ if you're walking in regular unrepentant sin? Or will you sense greater closeness to him and fellowship with him if you're walking in holiness, walking in righteousness, obeying his commands? 
John says as much in his first epistle, in 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, he says, If we say we have fellowship with him, with Christ, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, with us, with Christ and Christ with us. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. Abiding in Christ, then, is knowing the word of God, walking in the truth, submitting to Christ, and constant communion with him. Of course, no one fully abides in Christ all the time. None of us perfectly obeys all of God's commands. As long as we have our flesh on us, we're going to be inconsistent, and I think we all have experienced that. But the principle follows that the greater the abiding in Christ, the greater the fruitfulness. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. Now, he doesn't mean that you can't do anything. You can do nothing of eternal consequence, nothing of eternal value apart from abiding in Christ. And there's another picture of fellowship with him. He even calls those who abide in him friends, which is such a beautiful picture. Verse 14 and 15, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. What a wonderful picture that is. A picture of close fellowship. The characters, the command, and then we see number three, the crop. The crop. Verse five, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. God's goal is for you to bear much fruit. Not just a little fruit. Not just when it kind of feels convenient. Not just when I feel especially spiritual. There should be a pattern in your life as a believer of bearing much fruit. So what is spiritual fruit? That's kind of important for us to know too, right, in this passage. Abide in Christ, bear much fruit. What fruit? Grapes. Well, there's not one definitive list. You were hoping, what's the verse that gives me all the list? There could be many things that we do to honor Christ and glorify him as we submit to his word. Many things could be spiritual fruit. For example, the Apostle Paul calls godly character qualities the fruit of the Spirit, right? It's probably one of the things that popped in your head, Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. This is fruit that God works in us as we abide in him. Love, joy, peace, you can say the list. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Character qualities like these. This is the fruit of the Spirit. This is Christ's likeness that the Spirit of God works in us as we submit to him. 
And there's other kinds of fruit, like ministry fruitfulness of all kinds. When God uses you, when God uses the spiritual gifts and the abilities that he's given you as you apply them in ministry purposes, and he uses you and there's fruit from that, there's results, there's spiritual fruit from that kind of activity. And fruitful evangelism, proclaiming the good news of the gospel to those who need to hear about Christ. Spiritual fruit as well, and especially as we see converts, as we see, as we see God using us and using his message of his, the gospel to transform hearts and lives. Spiritual fruit. In fact, he says his purpose for us is that we would go and bear fruit. This is one picture of evangelism. Another other kinds of fruit, regular, genuine, heartfelt worship. Honoring God with choices and decisions that you face every day. Meeting the needs of others. And sacrificial love, laying down your life and your conveniences and your comfort for others' sake. Jesus says in verses 12 and 13, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Sacrificially laying down his life for us. And as we do that, there is spiritual fruit. That's an evidence of a transformed heart. Otherwise, we're selfish. Paul says in Ephesians 5.9, the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. So spiritual fruit is all the godly results of abiding in Christ and doing God's will as revealed in the scriptures. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. We see the character, the command, the crop, and then number four, the consequences. What consequences or results of abiding in Christ and fruit-bearing does Jesus say we're going to reap? Jesus gives us three blessings or results of abiding in him and bearing much fruit. First, we see greater answered prayer. Jesus says in verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go bear and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Why? So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And in verse 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, we love this verse, and we're puzzled by this verse. We don't know what to make of this verse. I'm sure many of you have puzzled through that verse. It sounds like a blanket, carte blanche, anything goes promise about prayer. Just pray it, and God is going to give it to you. How should we understand this verse? We need to understand what Jesus is and is not saying here. He is not saying that he is obligated to give you everything that you pray for. Because you can pray for all manner of fleshly, worldly, and selfish things that have nothing to do with God's program, God's will, God's um, redemptive purposes, anything. He is saying... Now listen to this. He is saying, if you are in close communion and fellowship with Jesus, if his words and his will are deeply embedded in your heart, 
My words abide in you. His words are living or dwelling in you. What's going to happen? Your mind and your heart are going to be transformed. Your thoughts are going to align with his thoughts. Your desires will more and more line up with his desires. Your wishes will line up with his will. And if that's happening, pray for whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Why? Because what you wish will be in line with what Jesus wishes, and he delights to answer that prayer. Do you see the connection? As God is transforming you from the inside out, he's transforming your heart through his word, through your abiding in him. Your heart is going to be transformed, and your desires are going to be transformed. Your wishes are going to be his wishes. So you're going to pray according to Scripture. He says later in John, 1 John chapter 5, 14, 15, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So the first blessing is greater answered prayer. The second consequence or result, Jesus says, is that God receives glory when you bear much fruit. God receives glory. Verse 8, By this is my Father glorified. By what? That you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. This is the ultimate purpose of everything in creation, to glorify God. This is why God created you. This is why God saved your soul. That's the purpose of this church. That's the highest purpose of everything you do in your Christian life, is to glorify God in everything. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And when you bear much spiritual fruit, it magnifies and glorifies God because you couldn't do anything to bear that spiritual fruit apart from the Savior's enabling grace. God gave you life. He sustains your life. He gives you abilities. He gives you gifts. He gives you talents. He gives you his spirit to enable you to obey him, and you obey him. Who gets the glory? Not you. God gets the glory. Because he gave you everything that you needed in order to obey him and bear fruit. And he's the one who bears the fruit. You counsel somebody and their life starts changing. It wasn't you. It was God working through his spirit and his word. He used you. Yes, praise God. But the glory goes to God because he's the one who does the changing. Not us. God gives you everything you need to obey him. So when you bear much fruit... It reflects back on him. The Father is glorified. Now, here's a bonus point. It's not on the slide. No extra charge, right? Isn't that what you used to say, Armin? No charge for this one. Another result, another benefit, another blessing is another element of assurance of salvation. You see in verse 8, By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So there's an evidence here of regular spiritual fruit 
that could only be produced by God and His indwelling Spirit through you and through His Word. If this is a pattern of your life, this is a regular assurance of you in your own soul that I am truly a believer in Christ and God does indwell me. That's a blessing. That's encouraging. Another blessing we see is full joy, true joy. Fullness of joy. Isn't that what we long for in our lives? Don't we want joy in our lives? We all want joy in our life, and this is one of the primary means of getting it. Verse 11, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. These things I have spoken to you. What did he speak to us? All the things about abiding in Christ and being in communion with him and fellowship with him and bearing much fruit, obeying his word, walking in holiness. All these things result in fullness of joy, the joy of the Lord, the joy of fellowship in Christ, the joy of abiding in him, communing with him. There's great joy in all of that. This is not a burdensome command on us. This is the crux, the center of the Christian life. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.8, Though you not, have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. The joy of the Lord is your strength, Nehemiah says. Do you want to have greater joy in your life? Then abide in Christ. Walk with him. Submit to him. Enjoy his presence with you. Do you want to have greater joy in your life? Then bear much spiritual fruit. And in doing so, you'll glorify God and you'll see greater answered prayer. Do you want to grow in love? Abide in Jesus. Do you want to grow in patience? Abide in Jesus. Do you want to grow in self-control? Abide in Jesus. Do you want to be courageous in evangelism? Abide in Jesus. Do you want to have fullness of joy? Abide in Jesus. Do you want to honor God, glorify God? Abide in Jesus. I am the true vine, Jesus said. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is who bears much fruit. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this glorious truth about our Savior, the true vine. I pray, Lord Jesus, that if there's anyone here who does not yet know this true vine in relationship, I pray, God, that you would work in their hearts, that you would woo them by your love, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would reveal to them the truth of the cross, and that they would trust you fully and only for their salvation. For those of us who have 
been Christians for some time, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would impress this truth on our hearts. Help us to remember this metaphor. Help us to remember that great fruitfulness only comes as we abide in you. Remind us this week, day by day, to abide in Christ, to walk with Christ, to commune with Christ, to obey him and his word. Thank you, Lord, for these glorious promises that you would give us fullness of joy as we abide in you. Use us, Lord, for your purposes. Use us to see others one to faith in Christ. Work in our hearts, Lord, so that our lives bring you maximum glory, that we become more and more like Christ day by day. In his name we pray.